Welcome to Brazen Education with Educator Barnes, a podcast with a focus on speaking your truth, being transparent to help others, and having no shame about it. Because we can't move forward until the truth is known. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Brazen Education. This is episode 40 and our topic is decolonizing education. Today I have a special guest, George Jeter, and I want to tell you a little bit about him. So George Jeter is the second great-grandson of an enslaved African, a USCT freedom fighter, a free African blacksmith, a white slave owner, and some awesome African women. He has attended colonized elementary, junior high, senior high school, and colleges. According to Mr. Jeter, their last their names are not important. They shouldn't be since nearly all of their classrooms and teachers had the smell of academic colonialism. By the time he was old enough to vote, he was fully educated and indoctrinated with a mindset governed by dominance and imperialism. However, that mindset never included him as an equal recipient of his riches. The ancestors can certainly testify. Through his work as a family historian and genealogist, Joris has come to realize that he, and his people suffer from PTSS, or post-traumatic slave syndrome. That's defined as a theory that explains the etiology of many of the adaptive survival behavior in African-American communities throughout the U.S. and the diaspora. It is a condition that exists as a consequence of multi-generational oppression of Africans and their descendants, resulting from centuries of chattel slavery. In recent years, Mr. Jeter has been on the quest to de- decolonize the mind. In order to step out and away from the specter of PTSS, before you can decolonize institutions, you have to decolonize your thinking. That includes Africans, Asians, Latinx, Native Americans, immigrants, women, students, LGBTQIA+, uh, impoverished whites, um, differently able people, senior citizens, and others. Um, you can follow him on his blog, Decolonize the Mind, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And we're going to get into this topic. So I'm really glad to have you on here today. So let's just kind of start by talking about how are children indoctrinated into colonized thinking? Like, how does that happen um, in the school setting? Okay, well, thank you for having me on, Educator Barnes. And um How are children indoctrinated into colonized thinking? Well, it begins very early, um, as early as kindergarten. And for most, it's perhaps uh, first grade when you are pledging the allegiance to the flag in your classroom. That's about the first time that you're really being indoctrinated. Uh, My experience with that was learning and memorizing the Pledge of Allegiance came before understanding the big words that were in there. I didn't know what pledge meant. I didn't know what allegiance meant and so on and so forth. And yet every day we had to um, stand up, put our hand over our hearts, look at the flag that was in the upper left-hand corner of the classroom and recite this pledge. That was the first uh, beginning of indoctrination. That's a really good point. A few years ago, I wrote a piece um, for Education Post that was called something like why I do not stand for the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. And what's interesting, I didn't start doing this um, when uh, Colony Kaepernick started, you know, kneeling. I started doing this years back, but I wrote about it like around the time where that was becoming a thing. And when I tell you the amount of hate and trolls I got online for just saying it like, you know, You don't care about the country. You don't love the country. Uh, How can you be an educator and not stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance? Because you're talking about I'm in a school, like I'm really in a school and I'm not saying it and I'm not participating in it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I find it interesting. I I really like your point to say that kids are learning something that they don't even understand, like what they're doing. So what effects do you think that has on children as they progress through education? Now I'm I'm pledging my allegiance to the United States of America. And how does that like continue um, in, in the school system? Well, uh, I should, to answer that, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit of my, my background. Uh, the first five years from zero to age five, I lived in the black community. 
And my first teacher, uh, my first black teacher was my kindergarten teacher. And um, uh, we moved because there was going to be urban renewal. They were going to um, reshape the uh, city, Binghamton, New York. That's my hometown. And they're going to bring the highway through. And so in the center of town where the black community was, was going to be uh, dispersed. So my family moved to the south side of the city. Other black families moved to the to the north, the east, and the west side. I mean, we were totally dispersed. So beginning with first grade, I'm in a in a in an all-white school, elementary school. I'm the only black kid in my in my class. So there I am doing the Pledge of Allegiance and all that. And I am trying to uh, put myself in this class, be involved with my classmates. I was a precocious kid when I was, when I was little and I made friends easily, but these are all white friends and the teacher is white. And the teacher begins at that point to separate um, in, in spirit, separate me from my classmates. Uh, my classmates, whenever a question was asked, they'd raise their hands. And whenever I raised my hands, I would be ignored. And I kind of complained to my mother and my mother kind of monitored the situation. And forgive me if, I, if I'm drifting off, but I, I got some points I'm gonna make here. Um, so I was always trying to fit in and be a part of my classmates. Out in, on the playground and in, during recess, we all played and had fun together. But once we got back into the classroom, we were, there was this separation that, that went about. And it came to a head when I got into the third grade. And in the third grade, we were doing the reading lesson where the first kid in the first row reads a paragraph out of a book. And then the second kid reads the second paragraph, so on and so forth. In this school, the book was Little Black Sambo. Little Black Sambo is one of the most racist children's book that you can possibly imagine. And it had pictures of uh, Little Black Sambo. He was this little darky kid and um, he had the pigtails and he had the big lips and all that. Well, as we're reading this, I, I'm kind of shocked at it, but my classmates, surprisingly, they loved it and they got into minstrel characterizations. So they were in their seats, um, just dancing and carrying on and doing this dialect. So, that was part and parcel of what was going on in that school for who knows how many generations before I got there. So I went home crying to my mother. And I said, Ma, the kids are making fun of me, this and that. And my mother said she would take care of it. So bear in mind, I'm in the third grade and, and I'm trying to think back. I don't know how quickly it happened, but it happened very fast. I don't know if it was the next day or the next week, but my mother went to the school. And the next thing I knew was that in our classroom, over there on the side where all the shelves, were, where all the books were, that whole row of books of, of uh, Little Black Sambo were gone. They were out of that classroom, and for all intents and purposes, that book was out of the curriculum. So um, that was like a, a very active thing that my mother, as a parent, uh, took a stand and, and made some changes in that school. That's a good thing. The bad thing for me was, for the next two years, my mother was in the back of the classroom uh, almost weekly. So I couldn't be that kid that could cut up and clown around because there's my mother in the back of the room. She was there to make sure that the teacher acknowledged me when I raised my hand to answer a question and that the teacher included me in all the things that were going on in that classroom. 
Um, that was, in hindsight, that was a, probably a beginning step to, towards decolonizing in the classroom for me. No, and I think you make a good point there because I think about how many things or stories I've seen in books in school, whether that's English classroom, history classroom, where you're looking at it and you're like, well, this is problematic. And there's that that moment where you're like, this is problematic. And, and then your situation is twofold. Like that affected you because you saw like black people were being displayed in a racist format. But for me, when I hear that story, I'm like, well, what about the white kids? There wasn't really a conversation or a debrief about why this shelf of little black Sambo was removed. And I think a lot of times I think about our current climate where it's like everybody's all woke and all these schools are releasing statements and saying, you know, we're going to have anti-racist teachers and we're going to be diverse and we're going to be equitable. And we're going to include everybody. But there's really not the real conversation. It's like, oh, we're just going to change stuff. But you have all these kids who have experienced like racist texts and texts where they weren't uh, being displayed appropriately. And there's not, not like not a conversation, not a debrief. So I wonder, like to you, I think that made an impact, especially if your mom doing that. But I wonder about the white children, like they just kind of went with that colonial mindset of like, that was okay. I mean, though, yeah, the book is gone, but they still enjoyed it and didn't really see that anything was wrong with it, you know, just based on what, I, what I'm hearing here in this story. Correct. And so thinking about that, what parameters are placed onto children through the education system? Because uh, we know there's this system uh, and there's systemic racism everywhere, including in the education system. So what parameters are on children that's kind of holding them back, holding them back from being maybe their full selves or breaking free uh, from the, the colonized mindset? Well, um, I don't know if anything is, or I can speak about in the past, if anything was, um, it was pretty much set up the way um, the founding fathers of this country wanted it to be set up. Um, children in the school environment, children of color were not considered a true part of any of the parameters. Uh, it's it's in back of the back of the classroom, back seats, those kinds of things were were afforded to um, for black kids. Uh, such as myself back in the day. Um, there were no parameters for the white kids and we were just marginalized. And I say we, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I was the only black kid in my class from first grade through eighth grade, from first grade through junior high. I was the only black kid. There were other black kids in the schools that I went to but we were just in different classes. Um, we didn't have a, uh, how can I say this? We didn't have a real collective experience that we shared um, because we didn't see one another for the length of time that we were in school. Uh, when school was out and we went home, uh, school was in the back of our minds. We didn't have discussions about school. We had discussions about play. You know, it's, let's go out and play before dinner time, that sort of thing. So um, that, but that collectiveness didn't happen until for me and for my classmates, again, the, the classmates who were white until junior high school. And we had a real interesting experience there. Let me tell you about that. I'll be telling you stories all day. Um, eighth grade. Eighth grade, um, at this point, we are going from classroom to classroom. The bell rings, we leave homeroom, we go to English class, bell rings, we go to uh, history class, so on and so forth. On this one particular day, um, English class, we were learning proper names and proper nouns, and that, that was the lesson plan. So it was, it was centered around where you're from, who you are and where you're from. So all my white friends, now they're friends and we bonded now, it's like eight years later, we've totally bonded. Um, they would say such things as, okay, um, my parents are from Scotland, we're Scottish, 
And so Scotland is with a capital S, uh, Scottish capital S, and so on and so forth. French capital F, so on and so forth. When it got to me, and this is English class, when it got to me, the, the word of the day was Negro. And so I am Negro, and that's spelled with a capital N, N-E-G-R-O, so on and so forth. Not a problem, not a major problem. Nobody was tripping. Uh, we got through that. The bell rang. We had to go to history class. We get to history class, and, teach, and, and it's a similar lesson. Um, the addition was the, the world map. So we pulled the map down from the wall, and now we have a pointer, and we point to countries. So uh, the kid who was uh, Italian, um, I'm Italian, capital I, and Italy, and takes the pointer and points to Italy on the map. Uh, the English kid um, points to England, so on and so forth. When it came to me, oh, and I have to back up. We have to get out of our seats and go up to the front of the class where the map is. And, you know, we, we're handed the pointer and then we have to do that. It got to me and I was like, hmm, well, I am Negro, capital N-E-G-R-O. And right then the teacher stopped everything, said, no, Negro is not capitalized. Negro is not a people. And so before I can even begin to imagine, to think, to figure out, I'm in the eighth grade, um, where am I going to point on the map to where I'm from? within the context of everybody else in the classroom that can point to Europe and all that kind of stuff. Am I going to point to New York state? You know, how, how stupid is that, you know, in, in an eighth graders mind. So the teacher really lambasted me for saying that Negro was capital N. So at that point, I, I begin to shut down uh, in a collective sense, in a community sense, in a bonding sense with my classmates in the school and all that. I begin to shut down. And so I become not this precocious kid anymore. I become this quiet, moody, can't wait to graduate and get out of the school kid. And um, so that's what happened to me in, in um, junior high. High school, we, we go to another building, another school, and it's just another thing. Um, high school was just horrible. Uh, but with this story that I just told, I want to point out that in the context of my classmates, which is what you were asking, um, I did not know until maybe a year ago, and I'm 68 years old, going on 69. A year ago on Facebook, um, where everybody's meeting their old classmates and things like that, um, two girls, two women, um, now women, uh, pointed out that story that I just told you. One of them said that they went to the teacher after, after class and told the teacher that was not right what you did to George. You know, and in her eighth grade way. That is the first time a year ago that I was aware that anybody in my classroom was aware of this colonial, imperial, racist um, thing resonated with them. 
No, that that's a good point, because I think about a lot of times you hear about when kids don't feel like the curriculum is reflecting them. They don't feel a part of the school, as you said. A lot of times you hear the story of like the kid that's like tearing up the school, cursing out teachers, leaving the school. But we forget the fact that the other response is like to shut down and kind of detach from school because Yorks was interesting. Like you like I'm about to be 37 next month. And like your story aligns to me like. I was ready for high school to be over. I was like done with high school because my situation, which people still are like amazed by this, I was part of the segregation busing. And I, oh. I mean, mm-hmm. and was and it ended in Indy, I believe it was like 2016. So it like recently ended. It's not like this, because a lot of time we think about desegregation busing, we're thinking about the 60s. We're thinking about civil rights. Well, what people don't understand is like, yeah, that got passed, but that continued for decades um, because the whole thing was we have to integrate and then everything's going to be fine, allegedly. And mm-hmm. I thought about, like what you said, like an elementary school. I'm at the bus stop with these kids, and some of us are in the same grade. But we knew once we got to the school, they were automatically going to split us up. So it's like one black kid in the class. And so, like, you try to fit in because everybody wants to belong, but you really don't fit in. And then when you come back to your neighborhood, you don't want to talk about how horrible your day was. You just mm-hmm. want to play. Mm-hmm. And so then I get to high school. And then the second part of the segregation busing that people don't like to talk about is the fact that it destroys neighborhoods. Because now it's like I'm riding on the bus for 30 minutes going through cornfields, right, to get to school. Now you have parents that are like, well, I don't want to drive 30 minutes to go see you in the show after school. I want to live closer to the school. So now you have people moving out of the neighborhood, which essentially destroys your neighborhood because, you know, those people aren't going to the grocery store. They're not patronizing the neighborhood. They're gone. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they built cheap housing. So now the schools are becoming more diverse because we're moving there. And then the white people who were there are like, OK, it's getting too black. So they mm-hmm. move out further out. And so as things got my more diverse, I'm in school. But some of the people that were my quote unquote friends in elementary school, they didn't want to be my friends anymore. The school is too black. We don't want to be here. And it's like all these things. I know myself, I got in trouble for not standing for the school song. Like I got escorted out of the high school pep rally in front of like everybody. And in my graduating class, there was over 400 students. So it wasn't, and so everybody's there because the, the, the principal decided to put her heels in on the fact like, and nobody was standing for the school song. So you want to stand, if you don't stand, you get into detention. And I, and I never, like I was not into sports. I was like the nerd that was at school reading. And so I get escorted out and to the shock of my classmates, they're like, Shantae? Like, she doesn't do, like, her? You got to take her out? And I was, like, the example. And so for me to be paraded out, and I did have a teacher who heard what happened. So moving forward, every pep rally, I wouldn't go to the uh, gym. I would go to this teacher's room. And nobody was even in there. The teacher was like, I trust you. Just read. I would do my homework and want to go to the pep rally. So I wouldn't get escorted out. So, mm-hmm. like, in one aspect, like, I had an ally at the school. But the other aspect, why was this the thing? Out of everything we are doing at school, you're going to put kids, a black kid who has good grades on the academic honor diploma track, you're going to escort me out. And so there's, like, so many ways we're, like, colonized thinking is embedded in, yeah. into the school, especially when you think about white supremacy and power. It was more important for you to be seen as powerful to make me you know, stand for the school song or make me stand up for the pledge or whatever it is. Cause it's always something we try to make kids do. And if mm-hmm. you don't do it, I'm going to make an example of you. And it's really, it's really not, not that deep. Um, so, so thinking about that, what type of changes, if you could go, cause I'm, so I got to tell you guys why I originally wanted George on the show. I wrote an article and I can't remember what it was called, but I talked about how, the principal I was at, at the time, how we didn't have no issues in the hallway. And most of my career, I've been in the middle school. And then at this particular school, I was in the elementary school. And I talked about how she had the kids always leave the classroom with a buddy. That would ensure there was no foolishness in the hallway. And I wrote about it. And I was like, this is great. And George was like, this sounds like prison. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And, when I, and I love talking to George because 
I like to talk to people that challenge my thinking to get me to grow, not challenge me for the sake of challenging me. Because you have people, like I got people all the time, it's like, you're not American, you hate people, you don't like white people. They are not trying to have a conversation, they're just trying to troll. But when George says that, I'm like, wait a minute, what you you mean? And so I think about that, (laughs) and Uh like that really stuck with me because I didn't see it that way. I really saw it as being in a school where you're used to chaos in the hallway, that this was a system, but, I guess you can you do you remember that conversation because we were kind of having it online um a little right. bit but the the thought about because you were really saying to me like the thought about kids not being trusted to be in a hallway and had to be escorted and monitored you felt like that was kind of almost like that prison the pipeline kind of mindset um so and our question here is like what changes should be made to decolonize the system I don't think you can even talk about that without talking about behaviors and systems and structures yeah yeah well, um, I do vaguely remember that um, that, kind of, that that writing that back and forth. Um, well, one of the things, at, and I and I, and I notice things as I go along, like I be with buddies and stuff, and they got to go to school, and you know, their kid and all that kind of stuff, and check in on things. Um, some of the things that um, schools can do is they can really um, uh reassess their libraries um believe it or not uh, when we were up in we were up in santa fe and they had a brand new school built brand new community new school new library and the the community was predominantly hispanic i say hispanic because they say hispanic um I'm not a big fan of that term, but nonetheless, I would say 85, 90% of the community is Hispanic. In the library, in the children's section, there was one quarter of a shelf of books for Hispanic kids. And I just thought of that, that, that's, that's shocking. That's you know, it should be the other way around. You know, there should be, um, you know, three or four or five books for the white kids, you know, that that sort of thing. And the rest of the library should be reflective of the community. I go back to um, when I was in high school, and I'll preface it by saying that in grade school it was like the 50s and the early 60s. High school was the mid 60s for four years. Um, I graduated in 1969. Uh, A lot of things were happening in the world that could not be denied. The civil rights movement was in in full effect. Uh, The Vietnam War was in full effect, et cetera, et cetera. In our high school library, let me back up one more step. Okay. I had mentioned that um, when they brought the highway through um, the black community, that everybody got dispersed. Now, um, we're the kids that I grew up with in my first five years. Now we're all back together again in high school. And we had been separated for um, eight years. So now we're in high school together. And now we have to learn about each other, black kids, um, because, you know, from different sides of, of town and all that kind of stuff. And now we're learning about this, this school, this environment. And when it comes to things like sports or academics or just gathering, social gathering, we're clustered together. There's the famous book um, or saying, why are all the black kids in one corner of the, of the cafeteria? That, that, that sort of thing. So that was happening. And we did a thing where um, uh, we started the Black Student Union. And the first thing, the first argument for the Black Student Union was we wanted socially relevant books in the library. So this is a whole academic kind of thing that we were all about. And, um, uh, and we were demanding. We wanted Ebony and Jet magazine in the library. I mean, it, as basic as that, you know, but more seriously, you know, books by Langston Hughes and, uh, and other authors like that. 
and we got pushback. We got pushback from that, and we we um, created the Black Student Union, and we walked out of school. And then we had the meetings uh, to try to the re reconciliation meetings. And I remember I was the vice president of the Black Student Union, and we're in this meeting, and we've got community leaders, Black community leaders, in this room, and so what were what are some of the demands and it came to me well we demand socially relevant books in the library we want blah 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 the principal says uh, excuse me george <laughs> but we do not demand we ask and i was stunned i was momentarily stunned by that because that's how we were brought up that's part of that colonization thing. And I was looking for our, our adult community leaders to um, back me up. And it was all crickets. They didn't say a word. Now I'm grappling with, you know, being a brash kid demanding versus being the way I was, I was brought up to be polite and respectful and all that. And and here the specter of colonialism just pops, enters into the room and big elephant in the room. I'll put it that way. Um, so getting back as I as I drift and wander, uh, the first attack would be on the libraries in the schools. Get socially relevant books that reflect the, the students. Um, from the community. Uh, got to do that, got to listen to the students, got to get the um, parents engaged, um, got to make it easy for the students to come to the, to the school um, and, and sit in the back of the classroom like my mother did. Um, my mother, when I got into the fifth grade, she said I'm, she was tired, and she was. Um, I was the last of four kids, and she said, you got to fight your own battles at this point. So um, that, that began uh, my thinking of uh, what was going on in the classroom and what was going on in life in general and how to um, navigate my way through all of this. School, school, school systems should make changes in their libraries. They, they need to make changes in their um, uh, hiring practices. They need to have more uh, teachers and support staff for um, children of color. Uh, and it has, it has to reflect the community that they come from. Um, let's see, what else can be done? Um, and there's, there's all kinds of things. Um, things that come to mind. Um, at one point I worked for a health services agency that dealt with the multiply disabled. And I taught um, life studies with the kids that were um, non-ambulatory in wheelchairs or had various disabilities. And some of the things that came up was, um, I, I'm going back to the library. Uh, the library was on the second floor and I'm in a wheelchair and the only elevator is the service elevator that's in the back of the school. And I, I and the child says, I don't have access to the library. So um, that's also a thing of decolonizing because we need to, we need to be um, more mindful of uh, uh, children with disabilities and stuff like that. Ask me another question, I'm, I'm drifting. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to make a point because like, all this stuff happened. Schools released statements about, you know, we support the black community or some version of that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so now my school started having these uh, diversity, equity and inclusion talks. And one of the things I brought up, I'm at a school um, it's a public charter school and 75 percent of our students are Latinx, 75 percent. And one of the things I said mm -hmm. is how many authors are Latinx? And, there, and it was just like, I had said something that was like an aha <laughs> thing. And I'm just like, 
this to me, that was like a simple thing that we could have been, been talked about. But I think what's the most frustrating for me is like I had said originally, like, I feel like our curriculum is not reflecting our students. And then I get, well, the data says that this curriculum uh, that we're using will get results. And when I hear people counter with that, but I'm like, but at what cost? Uh, because one of the books I brought up that I wanted to re have removed was All Quiet on the Western Front. My students currently read that. And, and I thought about, so as long as you get an education, it's okay if it's racist or it's okay that you don't see yourself. And that's like the thing that bothers me. And then uh, my husband was kind of overhearing uh, this call uh, because coronavirus and you're trying to like multitask and sometimes like I got my headphones now trying to be mindful of other people um, and the one of the responses was well we'll have to bring in an expert to really look at the curriculum and I really pissed my husband off he says but don't you supervise teachers aren't you an expert and like he's like you have experts in the school building and when you go and hire a person of color for their alleged expertise you still let's look over them you go get somebody else uh, so like when even when i think about the hiring practices i think like you get like sometimes many times in my career i felt like the token negro at my job you know i was the only yeah. black librarian in the school district mm -hmm. i was the only when i was an english uh, as a new language teacher i was the only one in the entire school district many schools i've been the only black teacher in the english department um so it's like and then my current job my principal is biracial. Um, she's half black, half uh, white, but I'm the only like black administrator on the our on our team. And when I bring up issues, a lot of times he's like, "Oh, here's the black person. She's bringing up the black issue again." And then I get responses, "Well, like, well, what should we do about it?" As if all that burden should be on me. And that's like, like I feel like that's like white supremacy and colonization mm -hmm. taking a hand at it. You know, mm -hmm. like we have a system, it works, but if you want to do something else, come up with a suggestion. And even when you come up with a suggestion such as we need to do an audit of the authors, we need to change some of the stuff we use. Oh, okay, thanks for saying it, but we're going to ask somebody else. And I'm mm -hmm. like, well, who is this other person? Are, they just gonna, are you going to bring in someone else to say that you did it? And then that person just reaffirms that you should just keep doing what you're doing. And so yeah. those are the things that make me feel like I'm trying to claw my way out of the system and I'm like this in a box, like I can't get out. Uh, so that's the thing that makes me the most frustrated. And I agree with you. Um, and it's not just, and people always miss this. It's not just getting teachers of color for the kids of color. It's also for the white kids. For like white people kids for, well, it's, yeah. it's for the white kids as well. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I think I wrote recently about my experience on working in the suburb in Alpha, in the west side of Indianapolis. Um, the rest of my career, I worked in Indy. Um, but that school, majority white students, I have four students who weren't white. And for me, um, for many of those kids, I was the only black teacher they ever had. And so their experience with a real person, not a person they saw on TV, in the media, a real live black person was me. And so I think about those kids, all those kids are not gonna stay in Brownsburg, Indiana. They're gonna go to college. And then I think about my experience at Purdue University, whereas like you meet these kids who've never been around black people, mm -hmm. who only have seen black people on TV, and you're just trying to mind your business. I think about being an African-American literature class. I'm gonna sign up for that, I'm an English major, I'm gonna take that class. And side note, I wanted to take Native American uh, literature, but you know, they had the classes that scheduled, the ethnic classes scheduled at the same time. So like even that, when you wanna expand outside of your group of color, there are systems in place that prevent you mm -hmm. from even doing that. And I'm seeing in this class, there's like me and three other black uh, students in the class. And you have white people in the class talking about like the authors weren't quality, the literature wasn't good. And one guy made a point to say like, black people were ugly, they're not a attractive and the class was led by a black professor and so if you sit in the class and even the black professor ain't saying nothing it was more like it's college freedom mm -hmm. of speech and i'm just like man this is so I'm, I'm i'm oppressed i gotta go to a class that i was so excited to be in just to be exposed to more um black authors only to sit there and be like nope yeah. Um, and the other thing I want to point out before I get to my next question is when you talked about the N and Negro being capitalized and the teacher's like, no, I didn't think about recently um, 
AP came out and said that the AP style guide, which is the guide the journalists use to guide how they write and format things, they said that the B and black should be capitalized. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been other publications, mostly like black journalists, have already been doing that. But even that was, I saw online, like, what about white? We're not capitalizing the W on white. And it's just like all like this. I'm just like, no, because like black is a more inclusive term because African, mm-hmm. I think about people I know who are, I would call black, but they're not from America. Like they immigrated right. here. So mm-hmm. for me saying African-American may not be the appropriate term for their uh, thing. So it's just, it's just very uh, interesting, yeah. but you mentioned something else. So, so let's move on to the next question. How okay. can parents play a role in decolonized thinking with their children? Because you have the school. And like you said, like your mother got involved. She got those books removed. She's like physically in the classroom. Like you want to mm-hmm. make sure my, participates but sometimes you hit a roadblock where you can't get the school to do anything and you may be in a situation where you can't switch your kid to a different school so what could you either do a to kind of keep pushing back at the school because i think we still should continue to fight even if they're not allowing it and then what should i as a parent do at home or outside of school to kind of help my children with decolonized thinking well um i think you're doing all the things that you need to do um books uh online things um that sort of thing um let me ask you this um parents today uh in your school district are they allowed to come into the school and sit in the back of the classroom so that's interesting so uh my kids go to school washington township and when they and they just finished third grade and for those of you that are watching they'll know i have identical twin sons they're nine well they'll be nine and a half next month because that half matters to them <laughs> right <laughs> and uh i would come and i always tell and i've written a few articles about you should go in and observe your child in the classroom so you see what happened and i say it should be unannounced so i did that kindergarten i did oh take it back i did that pre-k three pre-k four kindergarten First grade, second grade, last school year before COVID happened, I show up. Now I'm on fall break. My fall break was different than my kids. So I'm like, when I'm off of work, I'm just gonna show up. I get to the front office and get stopped. And they said, well, where are you here? I said, I'm just going um, to my son's classroom. Oh, you can't come in unannounced. And I said, excuse me. Oh, we changed the policy. You have to have an appointment. And to me, if my tax dollars are funding, mm-hmm. you know, your school, I should be able to come in whenever I feel like it. I shouldn't have to make an appointment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. literally the school's like five minutes away from my house. I drive right back around the corner. I feel like I had to get out of school parking like I was kind of hot. I go around the corner. I emailed the teacher and said, can I come in? One teacher ignores my email, which she had a habit of that. The other two like, come on in. So I go in to her class. So now I'm there in the classroom next door to my other son's classroom. And then finally the other teacher said, well, oh, you can come in. And so with that, that gave me an opportunity to see like how the classroom was set up. How does the mm-hmm. teacher uh, teach? And what was interesting, the teacher that was like, come on in, she was teaching about varying the beginning of your sentences, right? So she's like, you can't just start every sentence with I. Like, and I'm like, oh, that's good. I like that mini lesson. I was all in the back. I go to my other son's classroom. And this is what's interesting. My son kept telling me, mom, she keeps moving on. And my, I have boys, right? I'm like, you need to pay attention. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, don't tell me she's moving on. I sat in that classroom. They had just finished doing their literature little stasis. And they had to, the instructions were from the teacher, put your books away, put your notebook away, put your headphones away, and then come sit on your assigned spot on the carpet. Well, all those things were in different places because you had to put your headphones in a bag, had to put your book on the shelf, and put your notebook somewhere else. She felt there was only one kid playing around, and it wasn't my son because I was y'all in the back of the room, right? (laughs) But there was like nine kids who weren't done. She literally started teaching on the carpet to everyone else who was there and said, well, you guys just listen. And when I thought about my son, who is not one of those kids who can multitask, I was like, this is what he's been saying. Cause I, I mean, when I tell you, I was arguing with him every week about this. Like, mm-hmm. hey, what you mean you didn't hear when she pay attention? Cause I, I see him with the dinner table. I'm talking to him and he's like, what mom, are like, you not listening? And then I see in the classroom, like, this is what it's talking about, he was talking about. And that's why I feel like you should be able to show up unannounced. Yeah. But generally, some schools are like, come on in. 
Some schools are like, you have to have an appointment. And then some schools just make it difficult for you even to get the appointment. So there's variants. Is, and then with oh, COVID-19, okay. I imagine that there won't be visitors allowed because of the nature of everything. And that kind of worries me a little bit because there has been things I've seen during some of these visits that I found concerning. But on the other hand, my boys are in fourth grade and I believe that they're at the age where they can tell me things. Uh, but especially when your kids are young and they're not able to talk, you really should be in there. So the answer, you're have a long answer to say, yes, <laughs> I can go in pre-coronavirus pandemic with an appointment because after they switch the policy. <laughs> wow. Seems like to me that the appointment should be made with uh, with the admin, with the administration, not the teachers. The teachers shouldn't have to be burdened with that, quote unquote. Um, you know, you talk to admin, admin says, uh, come on in, uh, the roster is such and such, and we can accommodate, blah, 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 come on in. And then you just knock on the teacher's door and say, I'm here, <laughs> you know, um, take that burden off of the teacher, so to speak. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's important because the community, the parents in the community got to be involved with the school. Otherwise, um, you know, homeschooling is just going to continue to grow because um, the kids are getting their learning there at home more so than they are in school. Do you so, think homeschooling is a way for parents to fight um, colonized thinking? and to maybe help their children with self-esteem and kind of learn their culture? Do you think that's like a viable? Because I had um, Natalie Pipkin on a few episodes ago, and she um, um, refers to her homeschooling as black world schooling. So her mm -hmm. thing is bigger than just like home. It's like the world is the landscape for my black sons to learn about themselves and learn about the world. So do you think that is a viable option? Do you see that growing? And if if that's uh, that, and then what are your thoughts about things that parents can do to help like raise self-esteem and raise, uh, kind of get in touch with their culture because sometimes you don't get that at the school. That's true, yeah, you, you don't get it at school. So you gotta get it at home. You gotta have books in the house. Uh, you gotta have magazines, you gotta have reading materials. Um, you can tell the difference between a kid who has those resources at home versus the kid who does not. And um, gosh, it's, it's just as basic and fundamental as that. Um, it's gonna be the parents that are really gonna have to step up their game uh, to uh, keep their kids from being be unnecessarily colonized, growing up and being in the workforce or in the academic community and not being able to relate to their peers, to their people, because they're thinking in terms of uh, of, the, of the status quo. Uh, black kids are thinking white. Uh, Latino kids are thinking white rather than thinking Latino, thinking African. And you had mentioned um, uh, the term African-American uh, a while ago, and I, and I wanted to just throw this out there. Um, Black folks were Africans here in America up until pretty much the 1960s. So given, given us, our ancestors, the term African-American is a disservice. They were Africans. They were Africans at least up until 1865 when uh, the end of the Civil War. They were Africans. They were never Americans. Um, I just wanted to make that point because um, uh, they're, 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 they're shifting emphasis in the, in the textbooks. Um, it's not slavery. It's forced labor. They're, they're changing the, the words, the narrative of what really went on. And then if you can, you know, throw African-American on Christmas addicts, <laughs> it, it, it just it's just not right it's just not right we need to re we need to reclaim our history in its uh in its truth uh our ancestors were africans they weren't they weren't african-americans they weren't americans 
And it's hard, it's kind of hard pressed to say that we are Americans now, given what happens to, um, you know, so many, so many of our people that we hear about in the news, George Floyd and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm digressing. I know. Well, I'm thinking about, I thinking about your background about like family history and you, you talked about like reclaiming our history and claiming our story. And like one of the, for me, because um, you know this, like I research family history just like you do. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that was a part of me reclaiming who I was, learning more about my ancestors. So how can we even incorporate that into maybe as a parent? How do I go even about like just starting with, because I think a lot of times uh, for my family, it was like my dad, like I want to know more about myself. That's kind of how I got involved. Like mm-hmm. I was just like the assistant and I got heavily involved. I got more interested. But my dad got to a point in his life was like, I don't, I don't really know like these things. I want to know more. And so the more I learned about my family, like I learned that my family was from Georgia. My grandmother was the first child born in, in Annapolis after the Ku Klux Klan burned down their house two times. Mm-hmm. I, so like, that thing that's powerful to know like that's your that's the story and that's like the stuff they and and the irony is right you know they escaped the Ku Klux Klan and came to Indiana a big Ku Klux Klan hub so that's like the irony Mm -hmm. in this story here and the fact like when I look through historical documents they told me that my great-grandfather lied a lot about his age because he feared that they would catch him and so you look at documents and my there are sometimes my great-grandfather is literally younger than his kids (laughs) <laughs> and he would habitually lie about his age. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't take any photograph because he had a real fear. So for him, he didn't want to tell too much of the family history because it was like a survival thing. Right. Um, thing. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like, I feel like we are holding back our survival by not knowing our history, because I think that's kind of what's getting us into this colonized thing. And we don't know where we came from. So we're just adopting, you know, these terms like African-American. And then I think about like, I, I, I can hear teachers now. If I said, you know, I'm not African-American. Whoa, whoa, whoa Shante. Like, now, now we get a little, like they just get, you know how they, they just get like, whoa, okay. That's, uh-huh. that's a bit much. Like you asked me to try to not be non-racist, but anti-racist. And now you're throwing out this stuff. So I'm digressing, but how can family history play a role in like decolonization, uh, decolonization as a parent or school, whatever, what have you? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the, one of the big things now is, um, in terms of family history, is the DNA. Everybody uh, swabbing their cheek and doing the DNA, so that um, so that like a kid like George, who back in the eighth grade couldn't point to a place on a map, now he can point to a place on a map by way of DNA and say, "I'm from this. I'm from Ghana. I'm from. I'm Yorubu. You know, I'm I'm this and I'm that." And then you can bring all that forward. You can bring it from Africa, uh, through the slave trade, across the Atlantic, back into the um, into the North America, and begin to see where where your family traveled, migrated through, um, where, where they you know where they started and where they ended up in, in a sense. And it's this rich history that um, that you can use for um, teaching uh, self-esteem, uh, teaching um, uh, value, family value, um, those those kinds of things, because um, it's important um, to have some connection, some kind of a somebody to your to your psyche, um, and, and I'm stumbling now, uh, that's, that's, where, that's where I take uh, family history to heart. I, don't, I try not to call it genealogy um, because um, our, our circumstances are much richer than genealogy, which is just a bloodline. Uh, genealogy is trying to work your way all the way back to Charlemagne or all the way back to Jesus, you know, um, by way of blood. And no, no, our, our circumstances uh, going through the most brutal forms of chattel slavery um, 
our, we, we, we don't necessarily always have direct bloodlines. So um, uh, that's where family history research um, is important. And I used to be against DNA, but I'm for it now because it's a way of getting people in the game, in the game of family history. Okay, let's do the Ancestry.com and let's listen to Lewis Gates on, um, on PBS and let's figure out what our family um, is all about. Educationally, um, a few years back, I did a um, thing with a school in Philadelphia, um, helping the uh, kids do their genealogy. They they had a they declared a particular year as the genealogy year, and I was invited, and I went and lectured and um, spoke to the kids. Inner city school. Um, uh, security, patrolmen inside the school, that whole thing. Um, it, was, it was a tough thing to do, uh, getting, the, getting the kids to pay attention and all that kind of stuff. But once they got into it and uh, they went home and started doing their little family history and the things, the little things um, mattered a lot. It wasn't that they could go all the way back to Abraham Lincoln's time. It was they had an uncle. They had an uncle who was a, an athlete that they didn't know about. He was a heavyweight boxing champion, and so their their family tree has pictures that they found pictures of him boxing. Um, auntie uh, was a, was a nurse and um, a noted nurse there's a little newspaper clipping so they were so the kids were finding out things of uh of their elders and near ancestors that had a little story in the narrative that they could they could grab grab onto and saying i come from i come from nurses i come from teachers i come from you know athletes or I come from a from builders those kinds of things and that's that that was important um, uh, afterwards um, their grades kind of went up I was told they they they're really into it um, uh, one girl I remember one little girl she did a a, a dance interpretation of her of her family history i mean uh, alvin ailey ballet dancing right there in front of the classroom that was her, her that was her thing um, another person uh, another child did a did a powerpoint presentation they got into it whereas um prior to that uh they were not interested in school at all i mean school for them was it was awful. I mean, even when I visited, it was like, geez, I wouldn't want to go to this school, you know. Um, you know, you could get shot <laughs> in the hallway there, that, that sort of thing. Um, family history can be just as important as anything else in the classroom. If it, if it sparks the student and, and they, they want to go on to other things, I'm all for it. No, and I really liked how you talked about that, that correlation between I'm learning something about myself and my family, and then my grades went up. I think that part was really powerful because like you said, if I don't like the curriculum, if it's not engaging, I'm not paying attention. Therefore, mm -hmm. I'm not learning. Therefore, I have bad grades. But if you engage me, because this is where teachers are like, well, whoa, 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 how can I teach the standards? And when you said that, I'm like, well, I could teach them how to do an essay and put all that information together because that is something if you're English, you are supposed to teach. So mm -hmm. when yes. people say, oh, we can't do that that tells me you have like a colonized mind because you only see one way of things uh, being done. And then like you said, like the one uh, girl that interpreted dance, like just how you can kind of mix those mediums and have mm -hmm. kids show up in a way that's powerful um, to them. And I bet, I mean, I bet those kids know so much about themselves. And then the part where you said like, 
black we think about black history month and it's not a month that we black every single day <laughs> but yeah. you know oh let's look at uh president barack obama let's look at madam cj walker let's study dr king all of that's great don't get me wrong because at some point in time i have to tell my children about th those people right but mm -hmm. sometimes we forget there's black excellence right in your family tree that you can start with yeah. and i feel like yeah. that's so yes. much more powerful because i heard um, michelle obama came to speak um, at like this women's event so you know i was like i gotta be there and i was so excited but in the middle of her speech she says i appreciate those of you that look up to you but there are people in your circle that's closer to you that you could look up to and she spoke about her mother how that she was a role model and sometimes we're out here grasping or, or pushing kids to some you know, Dr. King, like when I think about, even when I learned about Dr. King, he was still this person a far time ago. My mm -hmm. kids, he's even farther back. Do they still need mm -hmm. to know about Dr. King? Yes, but we got to get kids to know people that's in their family. Um, so I think this is great. And before I wrap everything up, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us um, um, about your blog. So what should we know about Decolonize the Mind? I'm gonna pull it up for everyone to see. Okay. Well, um, Decolonize the Mind um, came about as, uh, as a counter idea to decolonizing institutions. Um, because if, if you don't change your way of thinking, uh, it doesn't matter what the institutions do. So, um, so I, I'm starting with myself um, as, 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 as the um, guinea pig, if you will. And I'm, I know I'm African and I'm looking to Afri Africa for inspiration and ideas. And I'm looking at, um, at my life um, as per some of the stories that I've said today um, and seeing where they were, where um, they were instances of colonization, uh, people controlling the way I think. Um, shaping my mind to go in a certain direction, um, which is part and parcel with subjugation, uh, and just freeing myself from that. Uh, here you can see um, that's my brother right there as, as I'm looking at this, and um, he was very inspirational to me. I would say that um, he struggled with, um, with colonization, in his lifetime, um, he's passed. He passed when he was 50 years old. Um, he was an all-star athlete, and the community loved him. And he kind of accommodated that um, that spirit. Uh, he went on to um, go into engineering, and um, he went to a. There's a company called Lynx, um, an engineering company. I don't know if they're still in existence today or not. But one of the things that what happened to him was that he was so good that um, after eight years at that company, they gave him a 10-year pin, and they credited him for two years of college. And all his um, co-workers and contemporaries hated him for that, or, and they hated the uh, system for that because um, they thought of it as preferential treatment because he was black. And... And through everything, he was the only black person in his environment for the longest time. Anyway, that's um, that, that. That's that's that. That's my brother. Uh, there's things like uh, Juneteenth. Um, I have an issue with Juneteenth um, in terms of colonization. Juneteenth happened because um, the the first narrative is that. Um, the slaves in Texas were not um, notified that they were free for two years after the fact of the um, Emancipation Proclamation. And um, it's like, oh boy, oh, now we're free. But the other side of that, the flip side of that coin, the real narrative is that the state of Texas refused to um, grant the slaves uh, their emancipation, their freedom. For, for for as long as they could, and that was that was an additional two years. Um, slave slave families in the South during the Civil War 
those that weren't in the Confederate Army, they took their slaves and, and their possessions and, and packed up and went to Texas so that they can continue slavery. I have, a, I have an issue with Juneteenth. I, I don't think that's something that we should celebrate. Anyway, um, just so, so many things. Um, I hope people will go to my blog. There's, there's, there's a variety of things. Um, I kind of freestyle it. I do some haiku poetry. I do some pictures. I'm a photographer, so I'll, I'll throw some pictures up there. It's a lot of things to, to, that I use to kind of decolonize my own mind, and hopefully some of those things uh, will uh, resonate with those who come and visit my website, my blog. All right. So do you have any final thoughts for our uh, viewers today? Well, um, uh, let's see. I babbled so much <laughs> that um, I, I would kind of say that um, I'm a people person. I love people. Um, this uh, quarantine um, really affects me that I can't talk to people, can't be amongst people. And when I say that, I, 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 mean, I mean all people. Um, I definitely think Black Lives Matter. Um, I'm not a big fan of um, the, the, the expression all lives matter because that's the default, all lives matters. But um, what's happening to black folks uh, most recently um, is, is front, front and center on my mind. So um, yes, I will talk about that. And whether you are white, Latino, I say Latino, um, Native, that's front of mind. Um, I'm going to talk that way. Um, uh, and I think um, folks should have those conversations. Um, there's, there's plenty of call to actions that, that are needed, but let's have those conversations. Let's be real with each, with, blah, 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 with each other, and uh, we can go forward. And uh, take this thing. Can you see that? Yep. We can, and he's holding up a mask right now. For yeah. those of you that see. Yeah. This is not a this is not a rights issue. This is a health issue. Take it seriously. Well, thank you. Well, I really appreciate you coming on to Brazen Education today. I love chatting with you. I love just having those conversations, um, especially when you put the thing up about Juneteenth. I'm like, man, I, I just learned. I think I learned about Juneteenth 2014, 2013. It wasn't now, but it still wasn't when I was in school. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you read it, he says more than he just said here. He breaks down about the, the Juneteenth flag. So there's some other things he talked about in regards to Juneteenth. So like I said, you know, there's many perspectives. And if you're going to be on a journey of decolonization, there's it changes over time. Um, even things I used to say, I don't say now. Or things I used to think, I don't think now. And I feel like it's going to be a lifetime uh, journey, as it uh, should yeah. be. Um, mm -hmm. So, guys, thanks for uh, tuning in. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.